A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Gabber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is sponsored in honor of the Adler and Kirsch families, a Freilichin Purim to them, and as this Chassam Seifer, who this episode is about, has been co-opted by so many groups within the Jewish community community today, and he's almost universally viewed for both the leader he was and the universal appeal of his vast Torah teachings. So there's a certain consensus and unity around the character of Chassam Seifer, and that inspires unity and should inspire unity, which is also in the spirit of Purim, which is coming up, and uh, we should all merit much unity together. So, this next installment, this is part four on the series of the Chassam Seifer. This is going to be ongoing because Chassam Seifer is a bottomless pit and there's you know plenty more to do. And obviously today we're just going to cover another facet of it. So the first three installments of the Chassam Seifer, and if I remember, I'll post the uh, links to the first three episodes in, in the, so you could be easily accessible. Um in the in the, the text summary of, of, of this one. Um, so the first one uh, we had way back was about the Chassam Seifer's family. Um, the second one was about uh, his, the main aspect of his leadership and his legacy is how he remembered of Chadash Asr Min and what that exactly means. We put that into context. And the third one we had was about his rabbinate and uh, rabbinical leadership in the Pressburg Jewish community, today Bratislava in Slovakia, and how he related to that community. So those, we covered three aspects of the Chassam Seifer's life and accomplishments. And the goal I set for myself in this fourth episode is to talk about the youth of the Chassam Seifer, his early years in Frankfurt, his teachers, especially his main teacher, Abnasen Adler, and that's a fascinating story as well. So we'll get the youth of the Chassam Seifer covered so we can prepare our way for further and future episodes on him, um, which I guess we have the in the future we'll cover. And of course, you can contact me for sponsorships in that regard, Yehuda at YehudaGaberer.com. Before we get into his youth, there's one thing I have to get back to that's been a recurring theme in the feedback I've gotten every single time we did something on the Chassam Seifer. And that was about how I 
mentioned a couple of times that he was a misnagid, an opponent to the Hasidic movement, and I tried to clarify it last time that I didn't mean that he was a misnagid in the sense of, uh, of uh, that he was against Hasidic teachings, which is definitely not the case, especially since he's a student of Renaissance Adler, which was quite similar in many ways, Kabbalistic, uh, mystical, which we'll actually get to in this episode. Um, and what I meant was in a communal sense, in a social sense, about separating from the community, establishing their own shuls, their shtibels, uh, differing from the accepted Ashkenaz Nusach. The changes, Rechazam Seifer was against change. I thought I had clarified that in a previous episode, and I still got a lot of feedback about this uh, idea that the Chassam Seifer, who's revered by the entire uh, Hasidic movement today, um, and should be, and he definitely is, stands in his place, but he himself was definitely not Hasidic, and was something of a an opponent. So I got, instead of trying to clarify it again, one of the uh, loyal and dedicated and quite knowledgeable listeners of Jewish History Soundbites sent me this fantastic summary, um, which he felt would be a very, very good clarification of what was meant. And I liked it so much that I'm pretty much just going to read it all straight up. And maybe I'll add in a word or two here and there to explain uh, what I mean. So here it goes. And thank you to that um, listener out there who took the time to write this lengthy response and explain what uh, it, it's all about. So here's what he wrote. Enjoying the Chassam Cipher series. However, I want to comment on a theme that I think needs clarification. I think I know what you mean, but I fear that you are trying to what you are trying to say is misinterpreted. It seems that you're going out of your way to point out that the Chassam Cipher has been subject to a lot of revisionism which of course is true. However, to most people, revisionism sounds like a terrible thing and is purposely distorting history, rather than the more common and less nefarious revisionism, which is simply filtering history through one's own prism, which I think is the case here. Let us all agree that the Chassam Seifer was the architect of how orthodoxy relates and can thrive in the modern era. He essentially created the blueprint that everyone uses to some degree, the fact that every group believes that they are following the Chassam Seifer's way not only proves that, but shows how successful his approach has, has been. It is not that everyone is interpreting his approach differently. Rather, everyone is taking his tools and applying it in different ways. The fact that, that many communities view in reverse, that their implementation is the way that the Chassam Seifer actually was, is typical and expected. Basically, what I'm saying that this revisionism is not a distortion of the Chassam Seifer, rather a positive proof of how widespread and impactful his contribution to our world truly is. Regarding him being a misnagid, first of all, he was not a misnagid in the Litvish or Vilnagain sense, or in the Naidibihuda sense, for that matter. I think that that was the point that many of your listeners were making. I don't think he had an issue with the Baal Shem Tov's Kabbalah or worldview. As you pointed out, it was more of the Minhig and Kehila side of things that the Chassam Seifer was opposed to in the Hasidic movement. Secondly, most Hasidim today, especially Hungarian ones such as Satmar, are a lot more like the Chassam Seifer than the Baal Shem Tov. I think that if both the Chassam Seifer and the Baal Shem Tov walked into Satmar today, 
the Chassam Seifer would feel much more at home than the Baal Shem Tov would. So maybe to some degree he was Hasidish as we view it today in many circles, and that Hasidish is in quotation marks. My, put, my point with Satmar and Hasidim was specifically regarding understanding the context of Misnagid and the modern-day Hasid. What I mean to point out by Satmar was that even if he was a Misnagid, your modern-day Hasid should not get offended or bothered by that. He would have no issue, the Chassam Seifer in other words, would have no issue with them and would be very comfortable and proud of them. The significant minority, or perhaps even majority of Satmar, that, dest- that descend from Oberland Ashkenazi grandparents are extremely proud of that. I think that the term Misnagid just rubs people the wrong way, even if it is somewhat irrelevant today. That is an excellent, fantastic summary. Um, that's the end of the letter, and that's, that's me talking now. Um, it's, uh, I think it's an excellent point, and perhaps I, I would even expound on that the Satmarav himself, with his goals and his vision, and his leadership, and his overall approach, and it can be illustrated in many ways, which we'll obviously have to save for another episode on the, on the Satmarav. I think we have a couple already, but there's definitely more to say on that. But the Satmarav himself, with all that, like I said before, his goals, vision, leadership, and overall approach, was much more like the Chassam Seifer, and continuing his legacy, than a Balshemtiv Hasidus. It's very likely that the, that the Satmarav himself, had he been around in the late 18th century, he might have even been a Misnagat himself. Uh, that's another schmooze. That's another discussion regarding the Satmarav. We'll save for another time. But he definitely, he himself was much more of a continuation of the Chassam Seifer than of uh, the Baal Shem Tev, if I had to pick one of them. Um, so, let's finally... I think that was uh, valid. I don't think that was a... A distraction. I think that was a very good point, and I think we can finally put this matter to rest um, about the Chassam Seifer and Hasidim. Um, I want to, before I get to the uh, the youth of the Chassam Seifer, there's something that I share on a lot of my trips, which I feel like should be at some point mentioned. It's such a great tidbit about the Chassam Seifer and his legacy that I share with my groups on the trips to Europe. Um, that uh, why not share it with the great uh, podcast listeners as well. There is a fascinating article authored by none other than the great Reb Meir Shapiro, which is obviously a great continuation from last episode. Last episode was on Yeshiva's Chachme Lublin, and we talked about Reb Meir Shapiro there as well. So this is kind of like a good segue uh, either way. But uh, Ramey Shapiro was on a fundraising trip for the Yeshivas Chachmei which we mentioned last episode, and he was on his way to London, actually, and he wrote this article for uh, a newspaper, I think in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, and it became a legendary article, and he describes how he visited on, on the way, you know, if you trace a map across Europe, so he obviously passed through the entire Central Europe, from Lublin, which is all the way in Eastern Poland, so he goes through the entire Central Europe. He's going by trains in those days in order to get um, eventually to London, um, which is you know take a boat eventually. But across Europe, continental Europe, he's he's taking um, you know the railroads. So he passes through both Pressburg and Prague, and in the article he describes the the set the a very poignant uh, description of Romer Shapiro. 
and this is in the 1920s, and um, both Prague and Pressburg had undergone, you know, you know, large secularization, as had Lublin too, obviously, you're talking about secularization was everywhere, yet there was something that Romero Shapiro noted when he arrived in Pressburg, that there was still a strong Orthodox community as well, despite the fact that there was, you know, mass secularization um, in, in the overall community, Jewish community of, of, uh, of Bratislava. It was already at that time. But um, descendants of the Chassam Seifer were still rabbis of the community, and those same descendants of the Chassam Seifer still ran the original yeshiva of the Chassam Seifer, which was a large yeshiva with hundreds of students, and is still a very prestigious yeshiva in Slovakia, the whole Hungary area, producing graduates who became rabbis across Czechoslovakia and Hungary. And uh, Ramir Shapiro said, wow, that's, uh, that's impressive. Chazam Seifer would walk into his own yeshiva today. He would be doing with a lot of pride that his approach worked. There's still a community that follows his way. Whereas when he went, he noted that, he said when he walked into the base Medrash in Pressburg, he heard people, he heard t- students quote, citing the Chassam Seifer's Tyra in a lively, passionate fashion. It was alive, it was very real. Whereas when he went to Prague, the secularization there was so extensive that there was almost no Orthodox community to speak of at all in Prague. And when he asked his guide, to show him around Jewish Prague, his guide brought him to the Altnay Shul and to the cemetery where the Maral was buried. Um, and that was it. So it was all in the past. It was all gone um, of, of the or, you know, Orthodox traditional Prague that Reb Meir Shapiro was seeking out, was searching for. And he said that uh, we see, he ends off that article, he says the Chazam Seifer was right. The Chazam Seifer won. His approach his legacy, he won. Whatever he, he taught is, is working. And the other approaches with the confrontation that the Jewish community facing modernity chose in the 18th and 19th centuries, by the early 20th century, it became apparent that those other approaches did not work. It didn't preserve uh, Judaism. There was rapid assimilation in places like Prague. Whereas in Pressburg, there was still a yeshiva, there was still a strong uh, community. So the, the Ramir Shapiro was concluding a hundred, nearly a century after the Chassam Seifer's passing that the Chassam Seifer's approach was a correct one. So that's a very, very powerful uh, statement of Ramir Shapiro. So now, if we can finally move to the youth of the Chassam Seifer, he's born in 1762 into an old and prestigious Frankfurt family who was in Frankfurt for centuries, at least from the 16th century. So that's, uh, you know, a good, good 200 years before the Chassam Seifer is born, perhaps even longer. His great-grandfather, just to mention one of them, one of the most famous ones of his ancestors, was Reb Shmuel Shatten. He was known as the Mahar Shashach, who was, the rabbi, uh, who was a rabbi in Frankfurt in the 17th century. Um, in this old... Frankfurt tradition would serve as a central anchor in both the Chassam Seifer's thinking as well as his approach to halacha, psak, minig, communal custom, and it would, it would ironically, it would also be a ultimately be a 
somewhat of a paradox in the Chassam Dever's life himself because it was he who cut off this centuries-long family tradition in Frankfurt due to his own unique life circumstances. So he comes from this long tradition and he spends his whole life trying to uphold this tradition and it, in, it has an impact on the way he paskins and, 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 and what he, how he attaches custom and his whole Yaki Ashkenaz outlook. And yet he's the one who leaves Frankfurt. He cuts off this long century, cent, centuries-long familial association with Frankfurt. Um, and that would be kind of like a paradox of his life. So though he eventually left at the age of 20, never to return. He never even came back for a visit. And though even before that, even before he leaves Frankfurt, there was quite a bit of tension in his parents' home and in the community. He moved into his teacher, Ibn Adler's home. Um, so there was already this tension within there because Ibn Adler, as we'll see, was uh, excommunicated by the uh, Frankfurt community, although that excommunication um, took place later, but it happened in stages. Um, first, they, there was opposition, general opposition. We'll get to it. We'll get to the whole story. But, but um, the Chamsaifer later on would have some pretty sharp words to say about his beloved hometown, about how they treated Reb Adler, his beloved rabbi and teacher. So... Yet at the same time, he will always refer to himself as Maisha Seifer of Frankfurt am Mainz, which is how he signed every single letter, uh, every single tshuva of his. He always defended the minig and the traditions of the Ashkenazi ancient communities of the Rhine River Valley of southern Germany, of which Frankfurt was the most prominent. And this paradox can be partially explained by understanding the mentality of an immigrant, which was a salient feature of the Chassam Seifer's identity for the rest of his life. He's an immigrant. So he always views his place of origin as an anchor of, for identity. He sees it with an element of nostalgia. And he sees as as a goal of preserving its customs and culture, how he remembers it in his mind from his youth, despite the fact that Frankfurt itself, the Frankfurt Jewish community itself, had undergone drastic social and religious changes uh, during the Chassam Seifer's lifetime following his departure from there. The Chassam Seifer that the, that the I'm sorry, the Frankfurt that the Chassam Seifer remembered no longer existed by the end of his life, um, but the Chassam Seifer still remembered the old one. Now, from a young age, the Chassam Seifer had uh, three teachers, three primary teachers, and he's and he studied in three very distinct uh, places. And obviously and famously, his primary teacher was Rav Nassim Adler, um, and I'd like to devote significant time to discuss the nature of that relationship since it's likely the most defining feature of the Chassam Seifer's entire life was his relationship with Rav Nassim Adler. So we'll get to that soon and, and discuss it as much as we can. So first let's cover the other two teachers that he had. So for a relatively short time, he was a student of the rabbi of Frankfurt at the time of, uh, of the Chassam Seifer's uh, youth. That was Rav Pinchas Horovitz, the Hafla, who was also a follower of the Hasidic movement at the court of the Magad of Mizrich. I had an episode on him, discussed him in his own episode some time ago. When the Chassam Seifer was relatively young, possibly even nine years old, but definitely no later than 11 years old, he became, he became associated with the circle of Reb Nassim Adler, and he emerged as his primary teacher. But a couple of years later, when he was a young teenager, 
um, for a two-year period approximately, between 1775 and 1777, he left Frankfurt for a nearby Mainz, Magensa, the Jews called it, and studied at the local yeshiva there of Rabbi David Tevli Shire. Shire, Shire. He became very close with him during this time, so he became a third teacher of the Samsefer. But what's even more interesting about his stay in Mainz was another thing occurred there during that time. A young Rabbi Meisha Sefer was hosted and supported by a local wealthy individual, and he utilized his time there in his home to make use of his extensive library and familiarize himself with general knowledge. He read books in German, possibly even in French, on scientific subjects such as geography, math, history, astronomy, medicine, other sciences, possibly even philosophy. And this support of general knowledge would continue throughout his life. And again, it's another curious paradox in the life and leadership of Sam Seifer, because he was supportive of knowing, of, of, of the knowledge of general knowledge, outside knowledge. So general knowledge is a yes, but any ideology to change the Jewish people or to expose them or change tradition or values or priorities through outside knowledge, that's a firm and decisive no, according to the Chassam Seifer. So the knowledge per se was viewed as a, viewed as a positive thing, and there's examples of that even from his later years. He, in one instance, supported the efforts of Reb David Friesenhuisen, excuse me, to establish a rabbinical seminary where the, the rabbinical students would receive a general education along with their rabbinical studies. In 1820, the Chassam Seifer agreed to a school in Preshburg which would have some subjects to assist them in, in achieving productivity, which was a term used by the government at the time, to achieve productivity of the Jews. It was demanded by the government, and the Chassam Seifer agreed that they would teach subjects like that in this school. In 1830, ten years later, he oversaw an Orthodox school opening in Preshburg, which had a full general studies curriculum in addition to the regular Torah subjects. He also hired private tutors for his own children to study general subjects. So again, while he was not fundamentally against outside knowledge per se, he was very, very opposed to how it was presented. If it had any hint of changing priorities, or there was a goal of integration, or changing Jewish identity, or observance, then he was not only vociferously opposed to it, he actively combated it with all the force of his energy, leadership, and charisma, and with all the means at his disposal. He was able to perceive the nuance and had the courage to act accordingly, displaying a strong leadership in every instance, and that type of nuance is part of the greatness of the Chassam Seifer. So, his primary teacher, like I said, was Reb Adler, and it's important in the whole context of the whole Reb Adler story. It was this mystical group of, you know, Kabbalists and 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 using Kabbalistic custom with their own minion, their own little shul and controversial customs. And they're eventually forced to leave Frankfurt following sanctions and later a cherem. Uh, Rav Nassim Adler himself returns to Frankfurt later on without the Chassam Seifer. The Chassam Seifer parted ways from him in Fiat. Um, Rav Chassam Seifer was engaged. Uh, Rav Nassim Adler was involved in his shidduch, actually. And the Chassam Seifer was engaged to his first wife and he 
got married and settled in Prustitz, um, a state in Moravia. Um, and uh, Rav Nassim returns to Frankfurt. He subsequently sustains another cherem, um, and the Chassam Seifer maintains a um, correspondence with him. They send letters to each other, so they maintain the relationship from a distance because the Chassam Seifer himself never returns to Frankfurt. Now, the the cherem on on uh, on Rav Nassim is rescinded. Uh, I hope I pronounced that right, is taken off a few days prior to his passing. Uh, the Frankfurt community uh, takes away his cherem. And uh, history has done, Ernest and Adler, um, some, some reconciliation, some justice has been done. He's, he was seen um, following his passing as, much, as for the great person he was. And even though during his lifetime, he went through a lot of pain and suffering um, for his uh, deviances of his customs and in, 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 within the community. So Rebnas and Adler and the Chassam Sefer have this fascinating relationship. Uh, Rebnas and Adler was about 20-something, 20 21 years approximately older than the Chassam Sefer, so he, there's a di- almost a different generation. Rebnas and Adler was born in 1741, and he passed away in 1800, around 58, 59 years old. And the Chassam Sefer joins his mystical group when he, like I said, at 9, 10, 11 years old, so that means Rav Nassim was was in his late 20s, early 30s. This is the early 1770s. So, um, in, what's interesting is that um, the the opposition to Rav again, he, he's running this uh, Kabbalistic group, and they have all kinds of customs which are not accepted in the community. They, he, he you know, he's doing a the, the, uh, change the first of all, he has his own minion, and they they daven a different nusach. They daven according to the Arizal Kabbalistic nusach. They also daven a, in a in a Sephardic with a Sephardic pronunciation of the words, which is also considered controversial at the time. They also have they they have the Birkas Kayanim every day, like in Israel today. But this was not in Israel. This was in Frankfurt. And many, many other customs, which I'm not going to get into, because maybe, we'll, maybe we should devote an episode exclusively to Rebnas and Adler. Here, I'm just trying to give the context for the Chassam Sefer himself. And, um, and, they, um, and, they, uh, and, and, and the community is not happy with it. Now, what's interesting is that, is that the first time the community acts against Rebnas and Adler is in, the, in 1772, which just so happens to be um, in 1772 is the same time that the first cherem against the Hasidim in Eastern Europe is promulgated by the Vilna Gain. And in Brod, in Galicia, and the f- famous pamphlet Zmir Aritzim, Zmir Aritzim Vecharboi Surim, describing the opposition to the Hasidic movement, is published during this time. And a copy of that reaches the... the um, the Frankfurt of Besden and Rosh Hashiva, Reb Nassim Maz, the very prominent personality, and Reb Nassim Maz is the one who leads the charge against uh, Reb Nassim Adler. So it comes from him, and it's definitely related to the fact that there's opposition to Hasidim, because Hasidim in the early stages are seen as very similar to Reb Nassim Adler, right? Kabbalistic customs, small groups, and of course this is in the shadow of the Frankist movement at the time, and there's a lot to talk about that as well. But there are a lot of suspicions, a lot of uh, anyone who's using Kabbalistic customs, having their own minyanim, changing the davening, doing their own thing, 
they're separating from the community. Everything is seen with suspicion at the time. Reb Nassim Maz gets the rabbi of the town, uh, Reb Afla, to get involved through intermediaries, meaning there's letters sent to the Nadi Behuda who gets involved, and Reb Yisif Steinhardt, who's the Rav in Fiat, he gets involved, and they all join this opposition to um, Reb Nassim Adler. First, there's a series of takanis that the Frankfurt community uh, publishes and publicizes, and all of these these uh, decrees are clearly again, they don't mention Russell Adler by name, but they're clearly against his customs. Each one is targeting a different custom of um, of uh, Reb Nassim Adler, and um, and when that doesn't help, so they place him in Cherem, him and his whole group, by the way. So I guess that included the Chassam Seifer. In 1779, Rebnas and Adler, as a result, departs from Frankfurt in 1782. By this time, the Chassam Seifer is 19, 20 years old. He leaves with him. He joins him in the exile. Chassam Seifer never returns. Um, Rebnas and Adler is hired as a rabbi in Boscovich in Moravia. And that's where the Chassam Seifer settles with him. But on the way, they actually have a very interesting encounter in Prague. They meet the Naidib Yehuda, who actually who was involved in the opposition to Reb Nassim Adler. Yet the two meet, and uh, the Chassam Seifer describes this meeting as the only meeting he had with the great Naidib Yehuda, um, the the uh, the previous uh, you know Gadol Hadar, the previous great rabbi of his generation. The Chassam Seifer had the privilege of meeting. This was the only in-person meeting he had with him. Um, they clarified all kinds of things in halacha, some of which were re- actually related to Reb Nassim Adler's uh, um, controversial customs. And um, some Seifer proudly wrote in a couple of tshuvas how the Naidib Yehuda agreed with some of the points that he made, that the young Sam Seifer made. And it's another interesting side point to this meeting between the Naidib Yehuda and Reb Nassim Adler and Sam Seifer is that the Naidib Yehuda's assistant was a close student of his at the time, Reb David Deitch. And eventually, David Deitch would, would rise to a very prominent leadership position in Central Europe. And the Chassam Sefer and David Deitch would enjoy for decades a very close relationship. So here are the two young men assisting their teachers, Rabnasan Adler and the Knight of Yehuda, are actually laying the groundwork for their own relationship in their, their respective leadership positions in, um, in the Jewish world. But they make it to Boscovich. The Boscovich Jewish community is very not happy with Rebnes and Hadler. They're also not happy with the Frankfurt community for not giving them the heads up about the strange Kabbalistic customs of their new rabbi and his students. They do not like his students that he brought with him to town who are part of his, his, uh, his group. And they get rid of him within a year. And Rebnes and Hadler moves to Vienna. Chassam Seifer lives in Vienna with his teacher and Vienna, the center of the Habsburg Empire, the center of European culture during the century of the Enlightenment. This is the, this is the, this 17, right? This is the, uh, you know, the 1780s. It's shortly before, this is after the Edict of Tolerance of Emperor Joseph of the Habsburgs. This is, you know, almost, we're on the, on the, we're on the brink of the French Revolution. This is the, the, Peak of the Enlightenment. And the Chassam Seifer is spending a couple of years of his youth in Vienna. This definitely gave him a strong sense, um, which would have an impact on a lot of what he, uh, the, um, uh, his leadership later. He saw modernity. He saw it 
where it was, in the center of it. Not to mention the fact that Preshberg is right next to Vienna. So even when he was the rabbi there for 33 years, he was a stone's throw away from Vienna. And of course, that's today when we land in Vienna. We go straight to some cipher. It's right there. It's next to it. It's not far away. So the, that exposure also has an impact on some cipher. So um, they part ways eventually, like I said, because some cipher is engaged, he gets married. Rubinassen Adler returns to Frankfurt. In 1789, he's put in Cherem a second time, and he stays there in Frankfurt for the next 11 years until just two weeks before his passing, they take off the Cherem. Some say for uh, mourned his uh, his Rebbe's passing. He was a rabbi in Matzdorf in Burgenland at the time of, in 1800, at the time of his passing. Um, and for the rest of his life, his... Uh, his uh, relationship with um, with him was at the center of his of his um, of, of 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 every part of the Chassam Sefer who he was. Now, there's many many stories between the two, um, like tons, loads of stories uh, between Rav and Adam and Chassam Sefer, mostly from their time that they wandered together they, through Europe, their wanderings. Many of those stories are actually true. I, I, I believe there's like you know tens or maybe even hundreds of these stories out there, and it's and and, and I'm going to leave them out. I'm not going to mention them in the current podcast for a simple reason that the Chassam Seifer Chevra, those guys, especially the Einaklach of the Chassam Seifer, they absolutely love relating these stories of the Rebbe Adler and the Chassam Seifer. So my recommendation to all the listeners out there: do a kind deed for another Jew this week. Approach the local Chassam Seifer Einikel in your shul or community or your neighborhood and tell them that you were listening to Jewish History Soundbites about the Chassam Seifer and Nassim Adler and that he recommended that you speak to an Einikel, um about the stories, to hear some stories about and the relationship between the two, and you'll probably make his day. So that would be something to do. I'll just mention two of those stories. Just because, why not? One is timely, it's related to Purim. It seems like some Seifer was in some sort of danger and to defend himself against an assailant. Um, the end result of that uh, uh, defense against this assailant was that the attacker of the Chassam Seifer did not survive the Chassam Seifer defending himself. Um, and the Chassam Seifer was very disturbed that he had been responsible for someone's death, albeit it was in self-defense. So he spoke, he discussed it with Reb Nassim Adler, and Reb Adler, based on his Kabbalistic and mystical knowledge, he comforted him and he said that his attacker actually was from Amalek. So he, you know, he was able to do the mitzvah of of Timcha Ezechar Amalek, getting rid of Amalek. Another story has them stuck in a snowdrift with a wagon driver, and the wagon driver hitched an ox together with the horse to to schlep them out of the snowdrift and. Rav jumped off the carriage. They had this opportunity to observe the incredibly rare mitzvah of Kalayim with animals. There's many, many stories in that same vein. But that's a little bit about the youth of the Chassam Seifer, and we'll continue with him in future episodes. This is Yehuda Geber, Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on all podcast platforms, and I hope you enjoyed.